Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to episode number 23 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I am speaking with Dr. Ross Fahadier, plastic surgeon at Panthea Clinics. Dr. Ross is an internationally renowned cosmetic plastic and reconstructive surgeon with subspecialties in facial aesthetic surgery, cosmetic breast surgery, and microsurgical reconstructions. He is unique among his peers, first and foremost, because he is what we call triple board certified. So this means that he has been rigorously assessed and examined by three independent surgical colleges and deemed to show mastery of his plastic and reconstructive surgical skills with each one. And secondly, he is the chief editor of the critically acclaimed and internationally hailed reference textbook of plastic surgery, plastic and reconstructive surgery approaches and techniques. His own contributions were chapters on breast augmentation, eyelid and facelift surgery. And due to his great success, he has been appointed as chief editor to a new edition which is scheduled for publication in 2020. Dr. Ross shares his journey into plastic surgery and the importance of following your instincts when choosing a practitioner. I started by asking Dr. Ross what he thought was the biggest misconception about plastic surgery. Dr. Ross, what do you think is the biggest misconception about plastic surgery? Look, without a doubt, the biggest misconception, I think, is that people think of it as nip and tuck. And this is something that's always been the case. It's just been amplified and magnified by the social media advent and a generation where this is what you see. So if you look back as far back in the 1950s or 1940s, even in old, old Hollywood movies, you would see people wrapped up in bandage and then all of a sudden they wake up and they look different and they're entirely different people, all done by plastic surgeons. But that was a very small, in terms of penetration to the market and its presence was nowhere as ubiquitous as it is now it's everywhere all the time for everyone yep and this idea that you just wake up looking completely different but the recovery stages is often what isn't it's not you don't see it actually isn't just that i think plastic and reconstructive surgery was born from reconstructive surgery and they go Mm. hand in hand a significant amount of what we do in fact the largest Mm. amount of what we do are specialist plastic surgeons is not cosmetic surgery. Yes, there is a generation Mm. of plastic surgeons who are only interested in nip and tuck and social media fame and all that sort of stuff. I think that's to the detriment of the profession and it's to shame of themselves, but that's a personal choice. Mm. The vast majority of what we do as plastic surgeons is hand surgery, trauma surgery, head and neck cancer reconstruction, breast cancer reconstruction, sarcoma reconstruction, 
all things that require enormous amounts of technical abilities and intricate details and they're perhaps more complicated than popping a couple of implants in a breast. It's not to demean that, but it's just to say that we do a lot more than just do cosmetic surgery. That is a small aspect of what we do. Yes, absolutely. It makes sense. So tell us a bit more about your career. Look, my, my career is like everybody else in Australia. So I graduated from medical school, University of New South Wales in Sydney in 1999. I did my internship, residency in various Sydney hospitals. And then I started my general and vascular surgery training. I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I had a bent for research. So I'd done some research in plastic surgery in my medical student years. And then I got a surgeon scientist scholarship to do some research in head and neck cancer biology, which is what I did. And eventually I gravitated towards plastic surgery and I went to Melbourne, which is one of the, I guess, birthplaces of academic plastic surgery, not just in Australia, but around the world where microsurgery first originated from. And uh, look, some of it was incredible. As anybody would tell you from training, there are barren grounds that you tread where job is not fantastic and the people who teach in those jobs are not fantastic either. But there are some jobs that are just amazing. And I was fortunate in having done some of those jobs as well. And at the end of my training, I went to Great Britain to do some further fellowships. I was interested in pediatric plastic surgery. So I went to Great Ormond Street, which is the oldest kids' hospital in the world. And then I did a cosmetic fellowship in facial aesthetics and body aesthetics and breast aesthetics. And finally, I did a microsurgery fellowship before I came home. In fact, if I could help it, I probably would never come home. I would just keep traveling and doing fellowships. But eventually, <laughs> I returned. Yes. And do you have a special area of interest? Um, look, I think one of the reasons why I did a lot of fellowships was because I'm genuinely interested in all these different things that we do in plastic surgery. And I think the whole is always greater than the single entity, if that makes sense. I was fortunate enough to be appointed the chief editor of our current reference textbook when I got back, which meant that I needed to keep my knowledge across the breadth and breadth of plastic surgery in terms of depth and breadth, very much up to date. And I have to say for the first few years, I was probably doing a lot of all of those things, but as is always the case with life, gradually you tend to do less and less of the things that you do less of. So I, for example, don't do anywhere as much pediatric plastic surgery as I used to, which is a shame. I loved it, but I never had a pediatric appointment in Sydney. Therefore, it seemed silly to be doing pediatrics when you're not at the kids' hospital. I don't do as much maxillofacial trauma surgery as I did, but I still do a lot of head and neck reconstruction for cancers. I do lots of facial aesthetic surgery, facelifts, rhinoplasties, and I do a lot of breast reconstruction and breast augmentation reduction, that sort of surgery. And I still do lots of skin cancers and teaching at the university hospital. So I'm sure as I get a bit older and worn out in years, things will narrow down even further. But at the moment, I'm still doing a significant portion of reconstructive surgery and teaching as well as uh, aesthetic surgery. Yeah, how interesting. And I wonder also the demographics of Australians having such high rates of skin cancer. Of course, this kind of focus would be completely different had you perhaps been living and practicing elsewhere? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, case in point is when I was in London, the volume of skin cancers that we saw were nowhere as, as high and as prevalent as they were here. Mm. And I guess, do you think also that when a plastic surgeon is met with skin cancer in areas that perhaps don't have as much, they feel a little less comfortable 
trading it because it's not something they're doing all the time? That's probably not true. The breadth and Mm. depth of the curriculum means that you cover things. There are Mm. extraordinary subspecialist areas such as, you know, e-reconstruction, congenital hand surgery, craniofacial surgery. They're things that probably people maybe not feel very comfortable about if they're not doing it for a long time. But skin cancer Mm. surgery, most plastic surgeons who've been appropriately trained feel comfortable doing, even if they haven't done Mm. them for years. Yes, of course. And what is it about the work that you do? Why do you choose to do the work that you do? I don't know. It's love, I think. For me, it's passion. Mm. You know, I get up in the morning and I genuinely love what I do. I love the camaraderie that comes from surgery. I like the fact that you get to help your patients. I love the fact that there are creative solutions to problems. This isn't a subspecialty, generally speaking, with only three surgeries, unless you just focus on three surgeries only. This is a subspecialty where there are a thousand ways to skin a cat and there's always an opportunity to think of something new and it is part of the cutting edge. I mean, all this stuff that we read about tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, all of this stuff has found its roots in plastic surgery. Some of the most creative parts of uh, tissue regeneration stem cell research come from plastic surgery grounds. Mm, How fascinating. And what has been one of your favorite career moments or case studies that comes to mind? Look, that's a, <laughs> that's a, no, probably look, that's many. a little bit harder to speak of. Yeah. I think we all have highlight cases. And whilst I can think of a number of things that I've done and I've seen, and there are certain very complicated cases that I've done, particularly a handful that I did with my mentor, who is one of the pioneers of microsurgery around the world and is just an extraordinary role model to have had and, you know, somebody who I now consider to be a friend as well as a mentor. But perhaps on a, on a personal level, the most extraordinary thing that I saw was when uh, I was called, when I was doing reconstructive work, I was on call to replant a severed hand. This hand had been severed at the wrist from a driver who had flipped the car and the sole injury was a severed hand at the level of the wrist. And it took us 14 hours to put it back together and put it on a plane and send it to Melbourne to Professor Morrison for some further microsurgical salvage. And I think that was that remains still, in some respects, the surgical highlight of my reconstructive career. Mm, wow, that is incredible. What was the outcome of that? Outstanding, actually. She's got excellent movement in her hand, fingers, and very good sensation back. So in these circumstances, you usually can only hope for what is called a helper hand, where the hand Mm. which has been reattached or severed is in a fixed position. You can just use it to move things around with, but not grasp things or function with it. Yet with her hand, she can write and she's got very good sensation and good movement. It's an extraordinary testament to her abilities and that surgery can work. Yeah, how fantastic and just so life-changing. You've been known to work on some extremely difficult cases. And what are some of the most common occurrences that you see when it comes to perhaps, I don't want to use the word botch, but surgeries or We like to call them revision surgeries. Revision, yes. (laughs) Do you think these can be prevented some way or or sometimes is it just you can't get around it? Look, I think the notion that surgery can be 
infallible and perfect all of the time is false. And anybody who's selling or pushing that narrative is being untruthful to themselves and the audience to whom they speak with. However, there are boundaries within which complications are considered acceptable, beyond which they are considered significant or beyond the normal line, as it were. So some of these cases where we talked about botched complications that were foreseeable and happened and maybe they weren't treated perfectly and they are I think within the norm range of what are called complications and often they do require revision surgery and these revision surgeries are thankless tasks because as the old adage goes the first bite of the cherry is always the first the best one and everything after that's always mm. not as satisfying so revision surgery mm. can be from an aesthetic perspective purely not as satisfying to the patient, but maybe from a technical perspective, more satisfying to the surgeon. But there are mm. botched cases as they were, where they are outside what you would consider to be the normal spectrum of complications. And these have occurred because people who were inappropriately or not trained have performed surgeries with inappropriate and unacceptable standards of aftercare. And they are mm. the hardest because if you see a complication which is outside what you would consider to be the normal expected spectrum, then you feel that these were things that could have been prevented. Mm. And I guess sometimes it's also subjective. I guess so. Depends on the severity, perhaps, but it, it could be subjective if... Look, the fallacy to not think that we are where we live. And by that, I mean, I recognize Ross when I look in the mirror as a sense of self. My face, mm. my nose, my ears, my hand, the rest of my body, to variations of extent form what I consider to be my sense of self, not so much my mm. organs, right? Or my brain or my soul, whatever you want to call it. So I mm. think it is very true to say that people who've had such complications are significantly affected by it. I don't think if they choose to live with it, it's not because they don't recognize that this is a significant tarnish on their sense of self-image. But I think when you say subjective, it means sometimes it has a pejorative sense, meaning that you could actually do without it. And that's not the case. I think people who seek advice for these things are very reasonable people. They recognize that, you know, something's happened and this is not quite right. And it's causing them a great deal of distress and to fix it. And most people recognize that it's impossible to get back to how it was or how it should be, but that some measure of salvage would be possible. Mm, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And just shifting gears a little bit, Dr. Ross, you're invited to provide some commentary on primary breast augmentation and clinical trial outcomes for surgical incision, anatomical placement and implant mm -hmm. types. There's lots of information about and also as far as how breast augmentation has changed over these years. But what were the outcomes of this trial? Yeah, look, it's very interesting because you look back at your own practice and, and if you have a sober mind and you're being fair, you would take an objective view and see how your own practices have changed. But the first time I wrote about breast augmentation was the chapter on breast augmentation in our textbook five years ago. And as I've revised it for the 2020 version coming out next year, I realized that I do things entirely differently now than how I did five, six years ago. The incision issue has always been a controversial topic. 
the current consensus is that the incision under the breast, so there are three incisions for accessing the breast, one from under the breast, one through the nipple or around the nipple, what's called the periareolar incision, and the other one through the axilla. There is a fourth incision through the umbilicus, but that's in the realm of fantasy as opposed to real clinical option. And not commonly in Australia, but more commonly in South America and the United States, periareolar incision and axillary incision, so that's in the armpits, have been not unusual as common approaches. And the idea is because it, it hides the scar a lot better than a scar underneath the breast. Certainly with video laparoscopic type surgery or what's called assistant surgery, which is done through the axilla, it was thought that you could put implants in through small incisions. And that's definitely true that the incisions can be smaller. But the reason our sweat smells and nipples can produce milk and things like that is because there's a communication with the world outside and there's what's called normal bacterial flora. This is normal bacteria that lives on the skin. And the problem with this is that there is good evidence to show capsular contractures, which is a thickening of capsule around the implant, can be very much down to what's called biofilm or bacterial contamination of the implant as it is placed into the pocket, despite the surgical sterility, despite the intravenous antibiotics. And if that's the case, then we need to be mindful of that. And it would be reflected in the fact that follow-up capsular contractures in that patient group would be higher. And in fact, this has been reflected. So there's a Canadian group that looked at this and they demonstrated that people who had a periareolar incision or an incision through the axilla showed a higher rates of capsular contracture. How interesting. Mm. So you mentioned before about the textbook that you've got another edition that is being released in 2020. So this is where in 2015, 130 leading plastic surgeon authorities were brought together and wrote a textbook how much has changed in this time yes. in terms of approaches? Well, it? Because it's not very long, just five yeah, years. Yeah, look, you're right. And it's interesting because when I was asked to do the second edition, that's one of the first questions that I had to ask myself. Did I think that the sufficient amount of information had changed that we could do this better and more because the original textbook was considered a relatively gold standard in terms of uh, how it was received from a critical acclaim perspective? And the answer to that is surprisingly a lot so yes there are areas where nothing's changed for you know 100 years but areas like breast augmentation or breast reconstruction for example they've changed a lot i mean you know we didn't used to worry too much about putting textured implants in 10 years ago five years ago we are now much more significantly concerned about those things breast implant illness disorder was something which we didn't talk about much there's a lot more evidence. Mm. So there was enough that actually compelled us to actually put a new edition together. Yeah, how interesting. And when it comes to these changes and this progression, who's pioneering it? Like how does someone decide to do something different? Because I can yeah, imagine you point. don't just go straight away uh, on a person. You wouldn't want to be testing on someone. How? These are incremental. You You're absolutely right. Mm. These are incremental. Like, so for revolutionary changes, so for example, when microsurgery first came in, they started with monkeys and rats and pigs first, and then eventually they did it on human beings. This is after lots of cadaveric dissections and studies. And so the same stands true today. So major technical changes, like tissue engineering chambers and things like that, they've come through incremental exposures before they've reached this. But everything else, you know, you need to be 
doing enough of something and be interested in something and have an opportunity to see a different way of doing something to then go about and do that. How interesting. And do you think with the change in technology, that is also helping with pioneering different techniques as well? So perhaps rather than testing it on a monkey or a pig, as you mentioned before, it is more like an AI or some kind of 3D type cameras? I don't know. Well, the, Just... the future is pregnant with hope, I have to say. And it looks like extraordinary mm. things are down the horizon. So I was at the World Microsurgery Congress earlier in the year, in July, in Italy. And uh, I was invited as uh, some of the microsurgeons there to try a new device where I did not scrub. I used a robot to perform microsurgery. And if you think that this robot was able to do this on such a minute scale and eliminates my physiological tremor and allow me to perform things that way, intricately more complicated than even now we can do under normal circumstances and gave us such extraordinary perspective into what the future may very well hold in not too distant mm. horizon. Yes. And how do you envision that the plastic surgery landscape will change in the future, either with technology or laws? I think or... dramatically. I think dramatically mm. with all of those things. But I think from my perspective as an academic and interested in the science, it's the science and the arts that will change dramatically. I think regenerative medicine, I think, will transform medicine in the same way as, as antibiotics did a little bit under 100 years ago, where, you know, prior to that, if you had uh, abdominal surgery, you were very likely to die from abdominal infections. Whereas as soon as antibiotics were invented, lots of things went away from death from pneumonia to sepsis postoperatively from abdominal surgery. The same, I think, will happen with tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. I think we are going to, we're on the cusp of some great leaps by mankind. And I think that will change and we'll see that in our lifetime. Much of what we do today will be seen by the future generation that's completely archaic, more so than maybe well, before. That must be really exciting to see this new research coming out and getting your hands on these new machines. Yeah, it is. And Dr. Ross, if someone is seeking plastic surgery, what would some of your advice be to them? Look, it's standard. Do your research. Make sure that you do read around a lot about what it is that you are considering and having done. Uh, there's a lot of information off out there. How to sift through it is important. And most people are wise enough to work out what's reasonable and sensible and what isn't. Make sure you find somebody who is qualified, who can give you a good and honest opinion. And make sure that you ask as many questions as you need to and that you trust your instincts. If you don't feel that you can establish a good bond of relationship with your surgeon, go and see somebody else. Or a dime it doesn't. Mm. Yeah, you are. Yep, great advice. And you mentioned before with revision surgery, sometimes it's about the post-care that has not been followed or adhered to. How important do you think pre- and post-care is when it comes to reconstructive plastic surgery? Oh, look, I think, I think it's vital. You know, I often meet with my patients multiple times before they even... Uh, sign up for surgery and I do the same thing postoperatively. They know that I am at the end of the phone. And the reason for that is because information is king. 
if you speak with patients enough times and you explain things adequately and that they know that if they need to ask anything on the end of a phone or an email, then it often helps alleviate mm. anxieties and avert problems. Is there anything that people do or need to do to prepare for surgery apart from the consent and things like that? Well, I think, I think the things that we talked about before, you know, be very frank and transparent about your expectations. Listen to what the complication profile entails. Ask about that. And no, I think that's about it, really. Yeah, do your research. And where can people find more about plastic surgery in Australia? I was speaking to Nicole Montgomery mm. several episodes ago about the landscape of plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery in Australia. And it is um, a little bit scary that yeah. it's a bit unclear of where people can go. Where's a good resource that you can recommend? The Australian Society of Plastic Surgery does uh, represent the specialist body of plastic surgeons. So I think that's a good starting point. Specific surgeons that you want to look for, make sure you look through their website. Don't look just through the glossy pictures. Make sure that you're comfortable, confident, that you're happy in your own gut with whoever it is that you're reading about. And then seek yeah. opinions. If you're not happy with one, seek another opinion. If you're not sure about something, Ask again. Yeah, that's right. And where can people find more about the work that you do? Uh, <laughs> so I, my practice is called Panthea Clinics, P-A-N-T-H-E-A. It means all gods and it's representative of uh, independent, strong women. And oh, uh, I love it. I was wondering what yeah, that meant. It's a name of, it's a Persian as well as a Greek name for uh, women. In antiquities, Panthea was uh, considered the most beautiful woman. She was a Greek woman, and there was lots of Greek or Persian wars, and Cyrus the Great sort of freed her, and she became the... It is said that she rose to become the head of the famed immortal guards of the Persian Achaemenid Empire, that not only was she beautiful, but she was uh, independent and, and quite strong-willed. And it always struck me that that would be a nice theme, uh, to think about empowered mm. women. Fantastic name. Absolutely fantastic. So Panthea Clinics? Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. .com.au. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Ross, thank you no so worries. much for your time today. Thank you for it's having great us. great to have you on the show. Thank no you. worries. Thank you again. Bye now. Wow, what an interview. I do love all of the interviews that I do on this podcast, but I especially enjoyed speaking to Dr. Ross. And he shared with us how the world of plastic surgery is changing and gave some usable tips for seeking a plastic surgeon and any other kind of practitioner for that matter. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, the safest hands are the best trained hands. Need I say more? Number two, Feeling good can be the driving force that enables us to reach our full potential. And if that means that you have plastic surgery or some kind of reconstructive surgery procedure, that is completely okay. If it makes you ready to take on the world and more confident, then you go do that. And number three, between reconstructive surgery, operating his plastic surgery clinic, co-authoring the next textbook on plastic surgery and being interviewed by Australian TV, 
Dr. Fahadiyeh still made time in his busy schedule to share his experience with Derm Health Co and you as listeners. And I think this sums up a man that truly cares about the patient experience. And with that, I think Sydney, Australia is really lucky to have him. I would love to hear what your three deeper than skin insights were. So make sure to share them on our social media by tagging us at dermhealth.co or shooting us an email info at dermhealth.co. I'd love to hear what you think and I'll see you next week for another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. If you know someone experiencing a skin conditional concern and you're enjoying these episodes, then be sure to share the podcast with them. It may help them on their skin health journey more than you realize.